Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'm answering your questions about whether folks with vulvas mature more quickly than folks with penises, and how what we're watching on Netflix is impacting how we behave in the bedroom. I also share my interview with author, activist, and therapist Farzana Doctor. Farzana and I talk about her new book, Seven, and how fiction is a powerful way to address taboo topics. It was a pleasurable and difficult interview, and I can't wait for you to hear it. But first, today in sex. If I asked you to draw a clitoris right now, could you do it? Because I'm not going to lie, I didn't get very good at it until this year. And well, it, then it's not even that great. You'll have to see for yourself over on Instagram. But trust me, it, it's hard. Get it? Because there's like erectile tissue in it? Yeah, anyway. But why do so many of us not know what the clitoris actually looks like? Or our vulvas in general? According to a recent article from The Guardian called Labia Liberation, The Movement to End Vulva Anxiety for Good, a recent study shows that over a third of people in the UK mislabeled the clitoris and they had an even harder time figuring out which hole is which between the urethra, the vagina, and the anus. Now, there are a lot of answers as to why this is. And the first is that folks with vulvas are often not taught to actually like look at our genitals and understand how they work. There's also rampant body and sexual shame, as well as this like hush-hush environment about not asking questions about sexuality or our anatomy. Around the world, this has resulted in higher rates of labiaplasty, which is plastic surgery to change the look of the vulva. Thankfully, a lot of folks are responding to this with art and activism to get us talking about and looking at vulvas. From the Vagina Museum in London to the Vulva Gallery based out of Amsterdam, and even pictures sent to me from a listener who went to see Ida Applerug's series of self-portraits of her vulva entitled Mona Lisa. But some of the funniest ones have been on TikTok. Ella, what's wrong? I don't know. Sometimes I just feel like I have abnormally large labbies. Large labbies? Untrimmed hanger steaks. What? A pony stuffed sleeping bag. A what? A generous helping of lasagna. Oh, how generous are we talking? If I fell from an airplane, I could parachute myself to safety. You could what? If the plane crashes into the ocean, I could provide an inflatable slide for the other passengers. Oh. Ella, there's nothing wrong with having an immense hand hammock. A what? A super-sized me happy meal. A what? A six-seater love cushion. Oh, there's not? No, bell sleeves are coming back in fashion. What? When a guy or girl goes down on you in summer, they can wear you like a sombrero. They what? When your partner goes to your ozone layer, you put the no in melanoma. Now that's safe sex. Oh. When the fairy tale creatures invade his home, Shrek has a new swamp to move into. What? <laughs> Thank you, Ella, for this amazing meat curtains TikTok and to the many other folks out there making hilarious content about vulvas. And in this episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking a lot about vulvas and clitorises, and especially in my interview with Farzana Doctor. But before we go there, let's get to your calls. Hello, Leah. My name is Shank, listener from India. I love your podcast. I think your podcast opens a positive space to get to know about topics which are not freely discussed among people. Thank you very much for being yourself and for your impactful work. I have a question for you. People say women become sexually and emotionally matured at a young age than men. 
What do you think about this? Is this is a misconception or scientifically true statement? Thank you. This is an excellent question. I'm just going to break it down a bit by talking first about bodies. So folks with ovaries and folks with testes, and then we'll talk about gender and sexual maturity. So folks with ovaries typically start puberty before folks with testes. Notice here how I'm talking specifically about the organs that produce hormones and bring about the major changes during puberty. And puberty can happen at any time between the ages of 8 and 21. So that's a pretty big spread. And while we tend to focus on the physical changes that happen during puberty, such as menstruation, wet dreams, acne, hair growth, voice changes, and breast or chest development, which, by the way, happens to 80% of folks with testes too, we don't talk enough about the emotional and social changes that also happen during this time. Our bodies start to mature, and this starts with our brains. Our brains are the ones that start producing hormones and kickstart puberty. They also try to make sense of what is happening in our bodies and how people around us are responding to them. We can start having crushes on people, and we might experience our first erections of the penis or the clitoris. So since folks with ovaries tend to start puberty before folks with testes, we can sometimes conflate this with greater sexual maturity. But the biggest sex organ we have is our brains, and that seems to be the link to sexual maturity at an earlier age. There was a study done in 2013 at the Newcastle University in the UK about how folks with vulvas, their brains developed earlier than folks with penises. So one of the co-authors, Sol Lim, explained that the human brain undergoes major changes anatomically and functionally as we age, and these changes make the connections in our brain more efficient. More notably, Lim's research found that this process tends to happen at an earlier age, and they say for women than men, which may explain why some women seem to mature faster than men. So if our brains are changing at different rates during adolescence, then it makes sense that our sense of sexual maturity, our inner sense and how we are perceived, would also be different. But I also want us to think about gender expectations and how folks with vulvas are positioned as the gatekeepers of sexual activity because they are seen as more mature, sexually and socially. This makes me wonder how much of our environment and our socialization impact our brains and how our brains wire themselves to respond to certain stimuli, and how much of this sexual maturity is imposed on folks with vulvas by a society that sexualizes our bodies at a very young age. Essentially, the science says that folks with vulvas, their bodies and brains start to develop earlier than folks with penises, but we can't separate science from the social systems in which we live. I've left some great links to the article and book that I read to answer this question in the episode description, and I hope that is helpful. Let's take another call. Hey, Leah. I was just listening to your episode titled, What is Real Sex Like? And in that episode, you were mentioning the TV show Special and how you felt it accurately portrays sex. And it got me thinking, so I'm curious to know what your opinion is like on other shows and how they might portray or fantasize sex like sex life. Or even reality TV shows like Too Hot to Handle and Sexy Beast, where they encourage eliminating sex or physicality from a partnership in order to focus on a natural chemistry and developing an emotional connection with a partner. Okay, so I actually got this question a few weeks ago, and it took me a while to respond because, you know, I had to go do my research and watch Sex Life on Netflix. So Sex Life is, I'm, I'm not recommending anyone go out and watch it. There are some really hot sex scenes, but it's problematic in many ways. 
But if we're looking at kind of these larger TV shows and how they portray sex, these are really unrealistic examples of what sexuality can actually look like. Even as the new season of Sex Education just came out, there are portrayals in there that aren't actually accurate to what those experiences look like. So yes, hot, spontaneous sex, absolutely that can happen. But a lot of the time, that spontaneity piece of just like, we go from not having sex at all to immediately, now we're having sex, that's not really how it works for a lot of people, and that's not really how desire works. I have a great episode talking about desire and all of these myths where I talk to Dr. Lori Brado, so make sure to go check that out if you want to know more. What I do want to say about sex life in TV shows like Too Hot to Handle is that quite often they try and separate sex from the other emotional aspects that happen in a relationship of many different kinds. It's not to say that you can't form a deep, loving, compassionate relationship with someone while you're having sex at the same time. That seems to be like the trope in Too Hot to Handle that if they have sex right away, then they stop themselves from forming a meaningful connection. This feels like a real slut-shaming response, and that happens in sex life too, where we tend to separate our sexual selves from every other aspect of our identities. Quite often, we villainize people who prioritize sex in their relationships, and if sex isn't working, if they're sexually incompatible with someone, we think that that isn't a major reason for that relationship to break down, because there's so many other things that are more important. Now, the point is to not place these things in a hierarchy because it's going to be different for each of us. I will say, if you do want to be watching shows that talk about sex, that portray how meaningful and hot sex can be, I would recommend watching Sex Education and Schitt's Creek. What I love about Schitt's Creek in particular, and Dan Levy has talked about this, how him being openly bisexual is not something that is ostracized by society. We are not replaying tropes of trauma when it comes to queer identities. Instead, even in this small town, his relationship is recognized as just as valid as any other relationship. I think this is what we can strive to attain. If we learn to be more open in talking about the kind of sex that we want, what are our expectations? What are our boundaries? Then maybe we can nudge it just a little bit closer towards the utopias that Schitt's Creek and sex education present for us. That is a great question, and I know that as more and more shows come up, I will definitely have more opinions on the sex that they are portraying. And now, my interview with Farzana Doctor. Now we talk about her new book, Seven, and her work as an activist and therapist. Now first, I want you to take care of yourself while listening to this interview. It's a really important conversation about the use of fiction to talk about female genital mutilation or female genital cutting. Throughout the interview, you will hear Farzana and I refer to it as FGM. Now, I listened to the audiobook of Seven, and it was such a powerful story with a pretty intense ending. But we also talk about the importance of pleasure. It is a pleasurable experience listening to and reading this book, because that is one of the most effective ways for us to talk about and learn more about these really difficult topics. My hope is that by sharing this interview with you, we can see how fiction can invite us into a difficult topic and discuss what we can do to raise the profile on FGM to stop its practice. Here's Farzana Doctor. Let, let's start by you know telling me a little bit about uh, yourself and the work that you do. You have many different roles as an author, as a therapist, as an activist, but a bit about you know what's important for people to know about you. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I split my day um, in the morning. I am a writer. I write novels. I write poetry. And um, so my morning might be just, you know, sitting and like being in my my mind and in my imagination or promoting my work. And then the afternoon I see clients. I'm a psychotherapist in private practice. And then, you know, on the side, you know, I do activist work. And these days, most of my activism is around and FGMC um, work. And I guess we'll talk about that um, a little bit later. And part of what I've been doing that I've been really enjoying in terms of that work is I've been writing a sex and relationships column called Dear Masi. And um, it's hosted through um, SAIO, which is one of the end FGM organizations, and um, get to talk about sex and answer questions about sex and FGM. Yeah, I love that that platform that you've held up. And I think now having we're going to talk about your book in a, in a moment, but now I like immerse in listening to the audio book. I love that it's called Dear Masi and that there's an explanation in the book of like, this is what you would call an auntie on this side as opposed to this side of your family. And so it's great to kind of for me to have that context and then being able to look at your column and being like, oh, this I I love that that space that you're creating there. And also one that is using language that is like culturally relevant to the folks you're going to be talking to as well. And then for me to to learn about that is has been a really um, amazing process for me. Yeah. And I, I write um, this, this book that we're going to talk about is, is really centered on the community that I was born into, which is the Dawoodi Bora community. And yeah, so we have all kinds of words that as I was writing the book, I had to kind of explain for the reader who might not know anything about our community. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's, let's dive right into talking about seven. And this is your, your newest novel. And I, as I was saying before, before we jumped on this is that I've been listening to the audiobook and there are some amazing actors, some voice actors who've been hired to do it. And I just feel like, you know, I plug it in and I'm like folding laundry or doing something else. And I'm just so immersed in this world. And I think, uh, you know, being someone who's not a part of that community, as you said, like you beautifully lay out in a way that's like, it's not didactic. It's just so much a part of the story being like, well, this is what this word would mean. And it's kind of through the eyes of, of Z, I think a lot of the time, like the daughter that you're able to explain like, oh, well, we're in India now. So let me explain how this works. And so you've done it in such a natural way. So maybe let's talk about maybe the premise of the book. And then I have a few kind of like crunchy specific questions that I want to ask you. So rarely you get to talk to the actual author of the book. So tell me a little bit about Seven. Yeah. So, you know, Seven was not a book that I was planning to write. In 2015, I joined a group called We Speak Out, which is one of the NFGM activist groups in my community. And it was through the flurry of being an activist and then also needing to like come to terms with my own experiences of trauma. And I just found myself writing these fully formed fictional scenes each day. It was just sort of coming out of me. And so after I had about 20 of those scenes, I realized, oh, I guess I'm writing a novel on this subject, this very complicated subject. And I have experience with all of my novels of sometimes having these difficult topics and how do you blend in a very difficult topic into a novel that someone wants to listen to or read? You know, how do you how do you make this pleasurable? So I began writing and the the premise is um, 
40-year-old Sharifa, who is um, Indo-American. She um, grew up in the States, um, left India when she was four years old. She is going back to India with her partner, who is an academic on sabbatical. And so the family is going. She has a seven-year-old daughter, Z. And in some ways, it's sort of a marriage-saving trip. There's been some tensions in the relationship, and there is some hope that this will be a good nine months for the family and specifically for her marriage. And she plans to spend her time homeschooling her kid and doing some research about a revered elder. Um, But what ends up happening is it's 2016, and this very insular religious Dawudibora community is in bit of a crisis around the issue of katna. And katna is a traditional practice that is very harmful and that um, the World Health Organization would define as type 1 FGM. So she has to figure out how does she feel about this issue. She's got these two cousins who are very dear to her, who are on opposite ends of the debate. And she has a lot of confusions and she has to find her own position. Mm-hmm. It, it's a really rich story. And as you said, how do you find a way through fiction to create something that it, it is very pleasurable to listen to? Like it's, it feels very like warm and inviting. And at the same time, it's very complicated. And I find myself, I have to like turn it off at certain moments, be like, okay, I need to sit with, with what's happening here. So I want to talk a bit more about Sharifa and then her research on Abdulali, talking about her great-great-grandfather. But before we get into that, maybe let's just, um, for listeners who don't know what FGM means, we're going to talk about this later in the interview as well, but maybe just a brief explanation of that. And then we can talk more about how that's woven into the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just, just to talk about how do you make this pleasurable, you know, it's, it's through the bigger story, right? It's, it's through this marriage and their sex life and the cousins and the, the silly things and the jokes. So it's, so all of this difficult subject gets woven into that. So FGM stands for female genital mutilation. It's also sometimes called female genital cutting. And there is such a variation across the world of how this is done. It happens in 92 countries across the planet. In the U.S., it was covered by insurance plans until the late 70s. So, um, you know, we think of this as an issue that happens mostly to African women, and it does in many African countries, but it's also happening all through the Middle East, through South Asia, through Southeast Asia, Russia, uh, places in South America. And as I mentioned in the U.S., um, it was, you know, white Christian women who were the target of this um, and maybe still are. One of the things we're learning about this issue is that um, more and more survivors are speaking out in the last five to 10 years. So there's this kind of me too moment happening around FGM. And so we're learning about all of the variations. So people can go and, you know, look up the World Health Organization, FGM, and they can kind of see what some of the variations are. And what I write about is type 1 FGM, a form that um, we call katna, and its target is the clitoral hood. Um, So it's a cut to the clitoral hood when a child is around the age of seven. All across the planet, um, the reason 
why the rationalization, really the excuse, the really poor reason for this happening is to control sexuality. So women and non-binary people's sexuality gets controlled in this way um, as though it needs to be controlled. It doesn't need to be controlled, of course. But that's the primary reason that we hear from all across the globe for why it happens. Mm-hmm. Right. And really that, unfortunately, is something that happens in many different cultures around the world of how are we suppressing, you know, folks with vulvas and clitorises, trying to police and manage their sexual pleasure and desire, and also just expression in general, right? Of like, well, you don't want to you need to make sure that you are a virgin before you get married. People who listen to podcasts, you know that I'm using a lot of bunny ears right now. You know this is what's happening. But yeah, like it's it's what I enjoyed about reading the book. And maybe I'll, I'll just give a little premise. When you and I first kind of talked, like I did my um, my minor in gender studies at, at UVic. And I remember that's when I, this topic kind of first came to light for me. So I was in my early 20s. And one of my professors in this in this policy class um, was like, you know, I implore you to go and educate yourself and we'll talk about it in this class. We're going to talk about FGM. However, to a group of primarily white cis women from North America, most of us white Canadians, she's like, I don't want to read another policy paper that you have to share about this topic because I'm going to say right now you're in your first or second year of university. You don't know enough. You don't have enough of an understanding of what's happening. And that has stuck with me in such a way of being like, yeah, of course, like we can have very strong feelings about something, but there's such a co-option of white women taking up space in arguments where we need to support, but not take up all of this airtime. I'll say, as I've been the one just taking up this airtime. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and but it's a really important point. And, you know, one of the things that I've encountered since I've become an activist in this area is that Often white women and, you know, I I live in Canada, so it's Canadian white women are very careful and almost like too tentative to take a position or be an ally in this issue. And I think it's because um, when when this started to get talked about a lot in Canada in the 90s and, um, you know, this that was a different time in our history. I think that there probably was a lot of racism and the the wrong people taking the lead. So now I think people are a little bit more clear and we've got social media. We can see what all the groups are out there. It's much easier to be, to figure out how to be an ally, I think, in this issue. You know, it's pretty easy to uh, follow some of the survivor-led groups, to amplify their messages, you know, sign their petitions, circulate their petitions, and so on. So there's a there's a lot of good work that people can do by you know being in solidarity and um, for the Canadians who are listening there is a fairly new network that has been created um, maybe about two and a half years ago called the Canada and FGM network and I encourage people to go and just join that network because you'll get information you'll get calls to action and you know this is an issue that happens in Canada too and so we have to be aware of it absolutely. And I think that's a, a big thing too. It's not looking at it being of further creating that othering effect. You're like, this happens in other places and in other cultures. And you're like, well, if this is happening here where, where, where we live, then you have to, you know, be aware of that. And like you said, amplifying and standing in solidarity. And I'll make sure that anything that we're talking about today, I have links all of that in the episode description and on my website. So folks can go and find that, look at the work that you're doing. 
So I'm going to rewind a little bit because I really want to talk about, as you're talking before, those, those pleasurable moments of reading the book and how you've kind of, you've beautifully set up this character of Sharifa and we're, we're experiencing the book through her eyes primarily and her own thoughts. And it's just wonderful. Like, you know, when she's hearing these differing opinions from her cousins who are like sisters to her. And she explains how, you know, growing up, they were so close, but just how she is conflicted of trying to understand how the women in her community and people of her peers have totally different perspectives on it. So why was that important to you to have both of those perspectives woven into the novel? Yes, it was really important because in the community, there are a lot of perspectives. So this is an issue that is highly taboo, very silenced. It's based in trauma, right? And, um, you know, one of the signature things about trauma is you're not allowed to talk about what happened to you. There's a lot of gaslighting. So um, what's very common is we don't talk about it in our community, even in our own families with people we're close to. We've just been somehow we've received the communication directly or indirectly to stay silent. Um, there can be a lot of confusion. The religious leadership tells us that it's required and harmless. We may or may not even know what happened to us. Like we might have very clear memories or no memories at all. So there, there can be a lot, it's, it's intergenerational trauma. So it's very confusing and we do see a real mix. So within my own family, there are people who believe what the religious leader says and thinks that, you know, Kutna is required and harmless. And then it, within my family, there are people who are horrified that it still happens and all the people in between, but mostly we don't talk about it. So I wanted to make sure I had characters who were all over the map there so that people could see reflections in themselves. The, the people who are believers in Kutna and, you know, continuing this practice are not monsters. You know, they are people who are believers in this really religious leader. And we're not supposed to challenge him either, by the way, like there, are, there can be some very direct um, consequences for people who speak out against him. There can be social shunning within a small you know, community that is very interdependent in lots of ways. And an example of that is that we have, we have an activist colleague who um, lives in the U.S. Her family is in Mumbai. Um, she was speaking out on Facebook and members of the community came to her father's business and said, we will organize a boycott of your business if she doesn't shut up. So there is this really kind of mean social shunning that can happen when people speak out. So, but at the same time, the people, you know, the grandmothers, the aunties who take their children for this, think that they are doing no harm because they just have been told that they're doing no harm. I would hope that after six years of very targeted education to the community, people have heard the opposite message and have maybe considered that they're wrong. Some people will never challenge those ideas, though. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that would be difficult as well, because uh, hearing, you know, you talk about it and having a very reading it in the book as well of, as you said, a very tight-knit, interdependent community and feel, feeling that you could lose that by speaking out. I, I, can I can only imagine how terrifying that must be because 
you know, your family, your community is, is so vital to so many of us. And so how difficult that is when all of those things are woven together. And then around a topic you said that's so taboo. So you don't even know maybe where to begin to talk about that. And, you know, what, one of the things I try to do with Sharifa is, you know, she, she does want to be, she's, she's kind of liberal and progressive in lots of ways, but she does want to be part of the community. She doesn't want to lose those connections. She's already lost some of those connections because her, um, her family immigrated to the U S when she was a child. So she already feels a kind of disconnect um, to her cousins. And so she has this quite orthodox cousin who is pro Kutna. She doesn't want to alienate her because she loves her to death. Um, And then there's the cousin who is the big activist, Fatima. And so, the, you know, she she's just like trying to please everybody, I think, throughout the novel. Um, and then her, her husband has some very um, specific ideas as well, right? So she ends up being somebody who um, has to sort it out in a way that um, it, it takes some time. And I, I kind of intentionally made her a little bit like that, like clueless, kind of in the middle, unsure, because I needed to be able to introduce the reader to uh, a community, to a practice that might have been so unfamiliar to them. And so she has these very gradual realizations. And that way, the reader can also have the gradual realizations. Absolutely. Well, and what what I really appreciated about that is, you know, it's, it's a piece of, of fiction and it's not that it's not grounded in reality and really important topics, which most fiction is. That's why I love fiction, but you know, it's not a, a public service announcement, you know, and it's also, as you said, a very deliberate choice. You're not telling the story from Fatima's point of view. Her point of view is very important of being very outspoken, being an activist, but you're holding that reader in that point of tension where they're just unsure and there's so much to deal with. And like, you know, she's, she's dealing with grief, like her father passing away and then also coming to grips with like, did this happen to me? And, and then, and then, you know, really hearkening to the title of the book itself being seven and that's the age of her daughter. So talk to me a bit about kind of those, those intergenerational connections. Cause I think you do a beautiful job of demonstrating that love and, community, but also, as you said, that intergenerational trauma is woven in there as well. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways I talk about it is um, she has, she has a Masi, her, her mother's sister, who is fairly orthodox, but this is her favorite aunt. This is the aunt who defended her um, when people would speak badly about her, the, the one she just feels the closest to emotionally. And they have had a very special relationship. And this is, this is something that was very important to me. Like I didn't want um, the person who was the orthodox pro Kutna person to be the unloved auntie. I wanted her to be the loved auntie to show us how complex this is. And, and she has her beliefs because this is what she has been taught. Uh, she has these books and she's a very educated woman. She ran a business for many years has a lot of community connections, but she believes what the religious leader says is true. So, so that was really important to have a beloved aunt. And then, you know, this, this beloved aunt is also very sweet to Sharifa's daughter Z. They end up having their own little sweet connection, right? But there's also this tension there because of course this Masi 
wants Katna to happen for Z. And, you know, Sharifa is saying no to that, of course. But it's, it's again, like, these are beautiful people. These are beautiful relatives. Like, what, what do we, how do we make sense of that? And of course, this is how, you know, trauma happens in most families. You know, the, the, the trauma is sometimes most complex when you just really love the person who's the perpetrator. Yeah. I think what I find so interesting is that, you know, as someone who has, you know, like academically has some understanding of, of FGM and has done some research on it, but being able to uh, use that storytelling and use that fiction as a way to talk about it. I think, I think maybe a lot of people would, if this was their first time hearing about FGM, might feel a bit intimidated, might feel like having kind of a gut reaction of, of pulling away, being like, oh, like, how do I even talk about this? Cause it, it is, it's, it's horrifying when you start thinking about it. But there is something, I think, you know, being in like being in the arts and being in theater and recognizing the power of using our art to talk about really important topics. That's always how how I think art has been used, right? To make us think more deeply about ourselves and the world that we live in. So I'm not, not sure where I'm going with that line of thought other than I just really ap- appreciate the fact that it is an inviting novel. And I think maybe to say to listeners, if if there was a fear about this topic, that this novel is such a, a wonderful introduction into how can I have a pleasurable experience while I'm reading this, but also deal with these emotions in a way that's very thoughtful. And I I wonder, I'm kind of coming to this now, that it feels very deliberate, and you, but you also feel very taken care of and, like, safe. I think, I wonder, is that a part of you also, like, being a therapist? Was that kind of an awareness of, because I think sometimes people create art for that shock value, and it, that and that's not at all what this is. This is a very well thought out and constructed story. So do you do you see kind of that connection in, in your work that way? I think so. You know, you, you can't really separate all of your parts, right? But I, I do try to have my novelist hat on first. And so I think about flow of a book. I, I think about what is the mood? I don't want people to stay in the hard places too long. You know, all of a, all of us who have experienced trauma are, you know, multiple, we have multiple existences and and identities, right? So, you know, Sharifa is somebody who is, you know, grappling with FGM, but, you know, she's also like a burnt out teacher and a mom and a wife and a, a cousin, and she's got all these other things she's working on in her life. So I, I think I, I really want to show that, you know, maybe a 10th of the novel's content needs to be that hard thing, but there's so much more to life that um, gets explored in the book. So, so that's my novelist hat saying, you know, let's, let's make this readable. Let's make this interesting. Let's make this funny. Let's make this sexy, all of that kind of stuff. Right. But then, you know, my therapist's hat was like, okay, I know that there's a lot of misconceptions about trauma, how people remember trauma, how people recover from trauma. So let's make sure good information is in there. I know there's a lot of misconceptions about FGM and Kutna. So that was my activist side. How can I make sure that I'm like showing, you know, some real information here? So I, I was trying to get good information in there while just giving people a story to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and, I, and that has definitely come through. 
right? And I don't, I'm kind of interested. Now I want to like buy like the hard copy of, of the book so I can like read it after then like listening to it. Cause there is, you know, different things in how you experience it and how you take in different art forms and novels. So I, I really appreciate it. You said like you're holding multiple identities, which of course that's what happens for all of us. And I think too often when it comes to certain issues or how our society is laid out that we only see or value people for one aspect of the identity. And we forget that we are all complex, you know, fully formed human beings with so many other things going on. And so it would be a disservice to, to talk about this really important topic without looking at that larger context, which, which feeds into that. A few more questions about uh, the book itself, and then we'll talk maybe a, a bit more about, about your work. What I love is that between the, the chapters, you kind of cut back and forth between hearing from this great-great-grandfather, because she starts on this journey of, you know, learning about her family when she goes to India and interviewing different people by, you know, the, the great patriarch of of the family, Abdulali, and a lot of people being like, well, we don't want to say anything bad about him because he's, you know, really helped establish this family to where it is now. So why why was that an important thing, right, to to cut back and forth between Sharifa seeing the world through her eyes and then going back to Abdulali? Talk to me a bit about that. Yeah, I think so much of what we carry in the world is what we've inherited over time uh, from our ancestors. And so the Abdulali character was fun for me to write. Um, the year before I started this novel, my father had encouraged me to do some research about a patriarch in our family. And his name is um, Hassan Ali Dokawala. I have a WordPress site up where I have collected some of the research uh, that I gathered on him. But, you know, one of the things that I did experience as I talked to my relatives was that they would only talk about nice things and they only knew nice things that they no one had met him. So they didn't really know his personality, the intricacies of his relationship. So I thought, you know, if I ever want to write about this guy, I'm going to have to fictionalize him. And I had this really nice opportunity to to bring in uh, some of my own research about my own great great grandfather into this novel. And of course, I did fictionalize him because I, you know, to make a character interesting, you have to make them messy and flawed. And some fun things happened as I was writing his pieces. You know, I got to do some research about historical Bombay. And I also got to figure out how might his, uh, how, how could the Abdulali character connect in with Sharifa's story? So how might he have influenced her life? And even how could he have influenced the Kutna story that was happening in this, in this book as well? So that is all fiction. Uh, that's not my own great-great-grandfather. But, um, but there were pieces that have, were heavily inspired by my great-great-grandfather. Like, for example, there's this one scene where Abdulali is in this spontaneous protest at a private school, trying to get his grandson into the school um, and be the first Indian child at the school where it's only white British boys. Mm -hmm. And that is based on a real story from my own great-great-grandfather. And again, it had to be fictionalized. No one told me what exactly happened because they didn't know. So I had to imagine what would that look like? What would he say? What would be the responses? What would come out of this? So it was really fun to try to imagine my own great-great-grandfather's hidden story through a fictional character. Mm. 
I love that too, because that seems like such an honoring of him as well, right? Because like you said, there's, if, if no one is around who like met him in person, there's that, that nuance and richness that happens with people that you, you can't capture, right? And so being able to imagine what they would be like. And I think what I also really appreciated is that, you know, as you're developing all of these characters throughout the book, like you said, the characters that we care about, they need to be flawed, they need to be messy. And I think too often, and less so when we're reading fiction, I think maybe in like larger popular culture, I think particularly of how uh, women are portrayed are kind of one dimensional. So the fact that these are messy, complex characters, and that you're you're looking at the great great grandfather, but then his experience with, you know, grief of you know, losing his first wife and then losing his second wife and then what that all, what that all looks like. I won't, I won't want to say like too much about giving away the story and things, but just, you know, what I love too is that you're always kind of bringing it back to and recentering those female experiences, which I think so often in history and now we just don't get to hear from enough. And so I, was that like a really, important point for you, maybe from that historical context, but just throughout the book of like, how do I center these female characters? Yeah, you know, um, that would be an intentional thing, probably for me, but it it didn't come that way. The characters just sort of arrived. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were the women, um, which just makes sense, I guess, for the story. And even for um, when I was writing the Abdulali character, I got most interested in what were his experiences with his wives and who were they. And that's because that's a mystery in my own family as well. Nobody, nobody kept track of those women (laughs) in in any kind of real way. So, you know, he's the main character of their story. And so I went digging for who, who were these women? What was their influence over his life? And how could we show him to just be like, you know, like everybody is a little flawed, a flawed husband, guy who made some errors in judgment when it came to his wives. So I want to transition now to maybe talking a bit more about um, your work as an activist, but also as, you know, as an educator, you said like, you know, having the Dear Masi column and being able to not only talk about FGM and activism, but a part of that is also talking about sexual pleasure and like talking about sexual health education, you know, with that in mind, because I think I'm just speaking as a sexual educator myself, it wouldn't be a part of what you would normally come up when you're talking to, to students, right? So talk to me a bit about that balancing of, of talking about pleasure. And it comes in the book as well, whether, you know, uh, Sharifa is experimenting with toys and her husband is always the one being like, well, maybe we'll try this and maybe you could orgasm this way. So talk to me a bit about that kind of sexual pleasure and getting in tune with your body um, in in relation to Katna? Yeah. So, you know, what's been really necessary in the early work that we've been doing is to just talk about how harmful it is, right? It's bad, it's harmful, it's traumatic. So that's good. We have to talk about that because there's so much denial about that. But I was more interested, and this is probably my therapist side, I was more interested in, so what does healing look like? When, when do we get a feeling of this healing work being done? Um, how do we reclaim pleasure? How do we reclaim sexuality if that's necessary, you know? So, yeah, because, you know, one of the assumptions that people will make about all of this is that it probably wrecked somebody's sex life and probably for like 
uh, you know, with the small scale studies that have been done within our community, about 30% of women will say that it has harmed their sex life. Another 30% don't know if it did or not. And that says something about lack of sex education and not knowing what you don't know because harm has already happened to your body at a very young age. Yeah, I was just very curious about, well, we don't talk about sex and relationships and that's a, that's a big part of our lives. And, you know, let's, let's see if we can do that. So um, a number of the topics that have been addressed are things like sexual pain. What does it mean that the sexual pain is in a different part of my like my vulva then where the cut would have happened. Um, why do I have trouble trusting people, sexual partners? How do I talk to my long-term sexual partner that I haven't really had much pleasure? Like how do we, how do we shift that? How do, how do I kind of wake up or open up my own uh, sexuality because it's been so shut down for such a long time. Even just talking about things like clitoral anatomy, because well, we've sex education folks have understood that, you know, the clitoris is this, you know, beautiful branched, you know, 10 inch organ. Um, most the, the, the general public thinks that the clitoris is just that little head that we see. And what does it mean if some of that got damaged? Right. So, so just to, just to talk a little bit more about how, how to understand sexuality better. That's, that's what the focus of this has been. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I've encouraged people to do things like just looking at yourself with a mirror. That's one of the oldest pieces of advice we've got, you know, that that's probably from the seventies, right. Or before, but a lot of people haven't done that. And a lot of survivors haven't done that. Many don't even know what was cut on their body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's funny that you bring up like the mirror thing, because it is something that I feel like people have heard it a lot, but I encourage you listeners, if you haven't done that, please, please do that. There's a reason though, that it has come up so often. And I think also, you know, maybe engaging in that regularly, right? Because how do we know, you know, I kind of have two brains where I'm thinking about health wise, if we don't know what like our vulva and our clitoris, what it, what it looks like, I'm going to say, quote unquote, like normally, like what's the the normal for you that it normally looks like, then if something is is going on, then how would we know if we don't have an understanding of what that's, what that's like? And just trying to unpack those feelings of shame around seeing and enjoying and touching your genitals where that can be something that's very empowering, very pleasurable, obviously. And as you said, being able to educate people about the clitoris not just being the what we see on the outside and how it being a much larger organ. I actually, kind of an aside, I just got like a vulva puppet the other day. Someone sent it to me and I'm so excited because as an educator, trying to draw the vulva on the board and then trying to draw the clitoris behind it, this is like the bane of my existence. So now that I have a puppet, maybe my life will be slightly easier because I'm like, okay, now I can draw the clitoris and imagine it here and draw it. I'm holding up my hand. I'm not holding the puppet right now. I will show it to you afterwards. But uh, yeah. yeah, and I've seen those 3D um, printed um, models of the clitoris. You can buy them on Etsy. And I think, you know, more people need to take a look at that and have a better understanding of clitoral anatomy for sure. Mm -hmm. And just something I wanted to say, you you mentioned earlier how 
sexuality gets suppressed in so many different ways. Our bodies get policed in so many ways. And so it's really important, I think, for listeners to understand that FGM is just part of that continuum of all of the various ways that sexuality gets suppressed. And so, you know, it's not just FGM survivors or sexual trauma survivors that have trouble looking at their vulvas, right? Like it's, it's probably everybody, right? We get, we get shame stamped on our bodies in all kinds of ways that aren't necessarily direct trauma. So I, I'd be really curious what percentage of vulva owners look at their vulva on a regular basis. Yeah, that is some research I would love to know. Do a survey of your listeners. Yeah. <laughs> survey of listeners, if you're interested. How many of you look at your vulva on a regular basis? You know, I, I was going to say, like, you can absolutely tell that you are a poet and a novelist, usually having that shame stamped on your body. And I think I've, I've talked about this like, a lot on this podcast about how unpacking and unlearning that shame it's it's so unfortunate that I, f- I feel like many of us have to spend, you know, a decent amount of our lives unlearning that. And how would that be different if that shame, if we weren't unlearning it, if we just didn't learn that shame at all from the onset? Do you see that as maybe a part of your work? Like, it's like, okay, like, F off shame. We're not We're not here for you. How do we start from not unpacking shame, but how do we educate from um, like a, a pleasure focus and an empowerment focus as opposed to, you know, unlearning that. Does that kind of feed into your work or am I putting words in your mouth in terms of that? No, I think it's, it's all this, it's layers, right? So one is to know what happened, happened, it's harmful. And then to know what impact it might've had on you. And then to understand, you know, what does the shame look like and how do we unpack that? But then also what does exploring sexual pleasure look like? Mm-hmm. And how do we do that on our own with partners? Like, I think it's, it's, it's stages and layers maybe mm-hmm. for people. Yeah. Well, and I, I loved your emphasis there on, on healing because it's so important. Like you said, it's, it's starting from that recognizing that, you know, this is a harmful practice. Let's start by talking, but that's where we need to begin. But as you said, when you start having that conversation, now moving forward, what does that look like for survivors? How do we make sure that we're centering survivors' experiences and not saying that, well, you're a survivor of this, and so your sex life is nil now, like it's non-existent. It's like, no, that's that's not the case. And if it's something that you desire, then there are ways to to find ways that do bring you pleasure and to find ways to trust people again. But I can only imagine how how complex that must be to start that conversation. But there's some trepidation on your end of talking about Kadna openly, as you said, like in terms of, of being very close in a community, but then also taking it that next step further of now we're going to talk about sex education beyond this and what does that look like in terms of our healing? Was that, I can imagine that being a terrifying process. Yeah, you know, for me, I didn't have so much trepidation with the community because I am I am a bit outside of the community. I was born into the community, but I, you know, don't belong to a jamaat or like a religious community. So I don't feel uh, personally threatened. But I think what was hard for me was as I was getting ready to launch the book, I knew that, 
you know, I know what the promotional cycle for a book looks like. And I knew that I would be having to think about my own boundaries. What part of my own experience was I going to share? Um, how did it feel, you know, if, if I were, if I was, you know, doing three interviews a week to talk about Katna that much, you know? Um, so, so I was really worried. And so I did a lot of extra therapy the, the year leading up to the release of the book to just help myself unpack just a little bit more. I'd been doing it for years, but there was just a little bit more, a little bit more that needed to be done. And so that by the time I got to doing, you know, the first or second interview, I realized that, oh, this is actually feeling like an opportunity. That's great. It's not feeling like an intrusion or, you know, something I've got to protect myself from. I have had to think about boundaries just around volume because, you know, probably for talking about any kind of trauma or any kind of difficult issue, you you just don't want your whole life to be about that. So I did have to think about that and not getting burnt out. Um, But yeah, so, you know, I had to deal with my inner child a lot and be really good to her and, For me, um, some of the therapies that have been really helpful have been somatic therapy, internal family systems therapy, um, mindfulness around sexuality, also just listening to lots of um, the, these kinds of podcasts, your podcasts, you know, just, I feel like the more we free up conversation around sexuality, the harder it is for the shame to linger. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's so beautiful. And I feel like that is absolutely the hope is that by having these, these types of conversations, as you said, like, I I so appreciate your time and energy in talking about this. And as you said, like, it's, it is hard to set those boundaries when it's something that you are really passionate about, and you want to have these conversations. But how do I make sure I'm looking after myself? And I and I love your, you know, looking after your inner child as well, and making sure that we're all okay before we embark on this. Cause I think that burnout in, I can only, again, only speak from my experience as a sex educator. It's very real because you see how much work needs to be done. And it's so embedded into your own daily life that trying to set those boundaries can get very difficult. So I, I so appreciate. Yeah. It's always a work in progress. Like boundaries are always a work in progress. I I probably did a little too much in the beginning because there is this flurry around when a book is new, you want to kind of get your message out as fast as you can to as many people as you can. And then, you know, that's okay. If, if you get a little tired, you get a little burnt out, then you rest. It's okay. But yeah, it's, it's always something I'm trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's also a very important takeaway of, I think setting boundaries, A, is I think is hard to do, but also knowing that even within those boundaries, it's okay if those change over time and adapt to what you're needing in that moment. I think that can be, I know sometimes when I'm talking, especially when I'm like teaching youth, trying to like, let's set boundaries and then trying to get more into that nuance of, okay, but your boundaries can change, but they're also very real. And so trying to, it's such a hugely complex topic as it is with, with many of the things that we've talked about today, hugely complex. So having the space where you can talk about those complexities and know that it's okay to hold those together and to and to work through those like at your own pace but to educate yourself as you go along the way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are there any other things that you you really want listeners to know either about your work about um, about this book uh, and again to listeners i i cannot recommend it enough i 
um, and really, I'm almost done. So I really wanted to have it done before I finished talking to you, but I'm also really excited because now, like, I'm really excited to hear, like, have those last few chapters right before the end, having talked to you. So your, your voice will be in, in my ear as I'm, as I'm listening to it. So yeah, anything else you'd like folks to know at the end of our interview? Well, let's see. Um, yeah, the book is available in paper, you know, ebook and audio book. And, you know, you, you mentioned um, how nice it is to listen. And I like to shout out the actors. So there's this woman named Elora Petnike who does most of the book and she's just amazing. Like in a certain one scene, there might be five different people and you know who they all are because she has these subtle ways of changing her voice. And Raul Baneja um, plays the Abdulali character. And I have, you, you haven't got there yet probably, but I have a small cameo role at the end. But yeah, I, I do hope that it's an enjoyable book. And I hope that it's a book that gets passed around for, for listeners who are wondering, like, what can I do? Uh, what, what, what could be my role? Every February 6th, there is um, the International Day for Zero Tolerance of FGM. And we really encourage people to do something on that day to raise awareness, to break this, the taboo, break the silence around this. So at your workplace, at your school, in your neighborhood, you know, circulate an article, watch a film, um, read a book, um, just, just do something to kind of raise the, this issue out of the silence. People should also know that Canada has done very little around this issue. Um, It's been illegal in Canada since I believe 1997, but there's been no enforcement, very little in terms of services and prevention. And the NFGM Canada Network has really been trying to push the government to create a national action plan. Because when you have national action plans, you have these sort of coordinated programs. So teachers get the appropriate education and the social workers and the doctors and the nurses even the border people, right? Because we still have uh, people who are going for what's called vacation cutting to home countries. Although we also believe that there are cutters in Canada as well who are doing this. So just just raising the platform around this issue so that you know young parents can have more information will think twice about these things, challenge their elders who are telling them they're supposed to take their kids for it. We want more kids to hear about this so that if they sense that something is about to happen, you know, if they pick up on the conversations happening in their home, they will go to a teacher, you know, or to a babysitter and say something. Mm -hmm. So we just, we just want people to talk, 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 talk about this issue. Thank you so much. And I I think the the one thing I want to just kind of maybe amplify there is like you said, it has to be a topic that if that kid can go to a teacher and they don't have to explain to the teacher what that is, the teacher already knows, the social worker knows, the doctor, the nurses, they if they already have an understanding of that, you are creating a safer environment for everyone and one that is that is more aware, right? So I absolutely I agree. And I will have links to all of the uh, the resources that that you've stated as well, so that people can check it out, as well as links to your book and so many other amazing resources that that you offer, and other like amazing podcast interviews that you do as well. So I'll make sure that your link tree is on there for folks to check it out. Thank you so much. This was a fun conversation and and uh, and a nuanced one. Thanks so much for for asking great questions. Yeah, thank you. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. 
On the next episode of the podcast, I'm talking to the halal sex expert, Dr. Shakira Abdullah. If you have a question for the show, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com or send a voice message to me on Instagram at dr.leahtidy. I love hearing your voice on the show, so don't hesitate to send those to me. Now, even if you don't send in a question, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like what you're hearing, hey, leave a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.